What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike. Welcome to the first episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. And what better way to kick off this podcast than with someone who's been so influential to the hardcore humanism philosophy, Steve Albini. For those of you who are not familiar with Steve's work, he's been a founding member of seminal bands such as Big Black and Shellac. But he is perhaps best known as the founder of Electrical Audio, where they have recorded some of the most essential records in modern history, including the Pixies' Surferosa, PJ Harvey's Rid of Me, and of course, Nirvana's In Utero. Steve is known for being a fierce and outspoken advocate of independent artists and culture, and he was central to developing the DIY business ethics that have become the hallmark of independent artists. When I read about Steve in books like American Hardcore and Our Band Could Be Your Life, it made me want to strike out and form my own underground DIY band. Then, when I first interviewed Steve for Psychology Today back in 2015, I was blown away by his approach to his work and his life. Talking with him was one of the inspirations for wanting to start Hardcore Humanism. Not only did I love the idea of starting an independent entrepreneurial venture, but also I'm convinced that everyone can benefit from hearing the stories of people like Steve. His outside-the-box thinking, his sense of purpose and commitment to his art, his craft, his culture, and his ongoing hard work and devotion sets the mark for anyone who wants to dream big and build a purpose-driven life. So here we are five years later, and I'm thrilled to talk with him again. I hope that you are as inspired by his story as I am. Steve, thanks for speaking with me today. Can we start off with you telling us what your world was like when you first became aware of punk rock? I mean, I was kind of awakened to music in general by discovering the Ramones as a teenager. And the Ramones kind of became a talisman for me and my small circle of nerdy friends. The Ramones kind of represented a way of thinking and a way of approaching a creative life that we extrapolated on. I'm sure it was a a bigger and more profound thing for us than it was for the Ramones who just wanted to have their band and play their music. But for me, the eye-opening things about the Ramones were that up until that point, it hadn't occurred to me that all of the sort of adolescent diversions that my friends and I were into, things like trash culture and horror films and taking drugs and misbehaving and vandalizing things and that sort of, you know, just general sort of adolescent unruliness, like it never occurred to me that those could be taken seriously as topics for songs or as, I mean, as for for the subject of art or that they could be illuminating in any way beyond that was a a good time that we had there when we got high and rode bikes up the hill. And the Ramones kind of gave me license to take all of those things seriously and, and say, yeah, these inner pursuits that we're using to form our personalities, those are as real as the sort of formal education that we're getting. They are as significant as the sort of external rules that we were learning. And it sort of just broadened my sense of what was acceptable in discourse and in in art. And then the extension of that was that people who were primarily preoccupied with these otherwise considered trivial occupations, like those, those people mattered as well, and I should take them seriously. And I shouldn't be like the squares that discounted me and my friends. I should be open-minded enough to take people as they are and let them contribute 
what value they've come up with originally, like organically, let them contribute that value to the conversation and all. So um, it made me more open-minded. It made me imagine a world of possibilities of, of music and culture. And when I discovered the Ramones, I was a teenager in Montana, in, in Missoula, Montana. Now, Montana is a fairly conservative, fairly, uh, at the time, um, fairly hidebound place. Missoula being a college town was significantly more progressive. Like it had a significant progressive mindset coming out of the university and all the adjunct things associated with the university. There were a lot of young people there. There was an intellectual quarter. There was significant lefty politics in town locally and, you know, awareness of national, international lefty politics. So it was a, a good place for me to have that awakening because I, I didn't have to imagine all this other culture. There were some examples of it there that I could find. And then that put me on the breadcrumb trail to get to Chicago, where I completely immersed myself in the punk scene here. At the time, that would have been the summer of 1980 was when I made my way out here. And the punk scene in Chicago was just getting into full flight. Like there had been a few bands and a few places for bands to play prior to that. But roundabout then is when the, the sort of nucleus of the Chicago scene was really coming together with a lot of energy. The, there were bands like Naked Ray Gun and The Effigies and Strike Under. And there were, there was a, in particular, there was a record store called Wax Tracks that was the epicenter of the underground music scene. And that was a, a hangout and a meeting place and a kind of an exchange where you could read the music magazines from overseas. You could read fanzines from other cities. You could buy records that were otherwise unavailable. You would meet people there that were into the same sorts of things as you. They were involved in music promotion as well. Like they sponsored quite a few bands first trips to America bands like the birthday party and Bauhaus and they they were they had booked Joy Division in Chicago prior to Ian Curtis's death it was just a a really pivotal spot in the city like every everybody that was into cool music would eventually end up there and that's where you would put up flyers for your shows that's where you would put up a flyer if you were looking for a bass player or whatever and i just insinuated myself into that community Obviously, this was long before there was ready, regular access to things like computers and, you know, cell phones were a bizarre novelty for businessmen. And there was essentially no means of communication other than the telephone. So people spent a lot of time on the telephone and a lot of networks were built that way through either through the mail, through postal mail, or by playing phone tag with people. And the thing that was most inspiring about that era was that everybody felt obliged to do everything. So if you were in a band, that meant also that you would help put on shows or help hang flyers, or you would help somebody put out their fanzine, or you would, if you had a rehearsal space, that meant that all of your friends' bands had a rehearsal space as well. Sometimes there was only one bass amplifier among four or five bands. So those four or five bands kind of always had to play together so that they could be sure that there was bass amplifier there, that sort of thing. And that sort of fraternal communal effort really made a huge impression on me. It made me realize how 
as individuals, we were, we could have ideas and we could have value, but as a collective, as a group of people working toward a common purpose, we could solve almost any problem, you know, just through the ingenuity of smart people committing themselves to problems and the willingness for everybody to pitch in. So that was a transformative thing for me to, to realize that you could live your whole life that way. And you had talked when we had originally spoken a few years back about how your, your business model and your business ethics were all forged in punk rock. And just maybe for people who aren't familiar with how you approach the business side of things, you had talked about the fundamental two different types of businesses. Well, I mean, there are businesses that exist for the sake of generating money, you know, and for, and, and for those people, those businesses, what type of business they do matters very little to those people. And in a lot of cases, that's the sort of the default of the investment capitalist mindset, which is that, you know, we're investing money in your company. We want your company to make money no matter what it takes to make money. The other kind of business is the, is the kind that I've always been a participant in where, where people have an enterprise that they want to pursue as a, as a kind of a calling, as a thing that they want to do. And you are forced into a business environment, so the business has to make money as a, as a necessity, but that's not the reason for the business's existence. Somebody doesn't open a brewery because they think that that's the best way to make money. They open a brewery because they want to make beer. You know, someone doesn't open some kind of a craftsman shop, you know, where you make fine woodwork or dresses or do anything else that requires expertise. You don't do that because it's the easiest way to make money. You do that because that's what you're driven to do. That's what you're, that's what you want to do with your time. And if things fall into place, you can make a living at it. And that's always the way I've approached my businesses. And I say businesses, but I, what I mean is that I'm a, I, I play in a band. I own a recording studio and I do freelance engineering separate from that studio as part of the overall exercise of my profession. One of the things that you've said in the past is that big mistake that maybe people in general make, but musicians in particular can make, is when you don't recognize that you're stepping from one model to another, you know, where you think you're going in with the intention of, I want to do this because I love it. And then you maybe intentionally or unintentionally step more into that corporate investor model. Yeah, there are some people who do it sort of unwittingly where they, they get involved, they get entangled in a business that will then make demands of them and they can no longer pursue it in a kind of a pure fashion. Like they can no longer do things the way they want to. They have to do things in a way that's been prescribed by their business entanglements. And for that, among many reasons, that's one of the reasons that I don't use contracts in my work. When I work for someone else as an engineer working on their record, we agree on what I'm going to be paid and then I trust them to pay me. And the agreement is based on a notion of fairness rather than any sort of market rate for my services or anything like that. When my band plays shows for concert promoters or at, at venues, we don't use a contract to secure the agreement that we've made with those people. We trust people to be good for their word. And if they're not, if they prove not to be good for their word, then we will probably hear about it prior to making any kind of a deal with them and we will avoid them. 
But if we learn the hard way, and that I have to point out that that's a vanishingly rare thing that we learn the hard way that somebody's not good for their word, then we write them off and we won't work with work with them in the future. And in the meantime, we've saved all of the administrative hassle and all of the nitpicking that is associated with contracts. I'm of the opinion that contracts have no value for agreements between people that are not for massive sums of money. And even in the case of massive sums of money, most of the time you can get by without a a formal binding legal document. My band, for example, has been with the same record label, Touch and Go Records, since the mid-80s. And I mean, I say my band, but I've been in several bands, but all of them have been working with Touch and Go. And the sums over that long period of time amount to many millions of dollars. And we've never had any kind of a formal agreement between us. We've just always agreed that we would split the profits equitably from everything that we do. And we would get a complete accounting for everything. We always have. So we have the relationship has continued. And if at some point that relationship broke down, if we didn't get a transparent and complete accounting, or if we didn't get paid what we thought was a fair split of the profit, well, then the relationship would just sort of naturally end. There wouldn't need to be an exit clause in a contract. We would just decide that we didn't want to work together anymore and and we'd be done with it. And similarly, if we started to disappoint the record label, like if we started making music that was that offended their politics or that they thought was substandard and they didn't want to release it, they didn't want to associate themselves with it, then they could just end the relationship that way. Just naturally, the relationship would end because it wasn't suitable anymore. And I found that that approach works in almost every situation. Occasionally, someone will be a real stickler about it and insist that you sign something and then you just leave it to them. Like, okay, well, you cannot do this thing that you want to do because you're afraid of me not signing that piece of paper, or you can forget about the piece of paper and we'll carry on as normal. And essentially always they forget about the piece of paper. Do you feel as though by both doing all these different aspects of a band or a business, you know, like mm-hmm. you're saying, promoting, and then also by by not having a contract and you need to have more of this connection, do you feel like it's easier to build a community in that context as opposed to if you were just kind of coming in and playing the music and a bunch of other people were handling things? Yeah. I mean, you can't be a carpetbagger in an environment where every relationship is going to be a personal one and by default ends up being a a long-term or permanent relationship unless people disappoint each other. Like you can't swoop in from the outside and become a part of that community because those relationships only exist as an outgrowth of the community. They're not the end goal of the process isn't to find financiers or administrators. The end goal of the process is to advance the overall project to, you know, in the case of music to like advance the culture, to have awesome shows, to be in a great band. And it's simply not possible to purchase that kind of position as a commodity. Like you can't, do it the way you could by say buying an NBA franchise. You're like, now I'm a basketball owner. You know, there are people who have tried, there are people who have just like cut off a wedge of money and decided to fund a record label or a magazine or a venue or something like that. And in a sense, sort of purchase themselves status in that community, but they're transparently flawed. And generally speaking, those enterprises don't last very long. They last about as long as it takes for somebody to realize that it's got to be a life's work or it's not worth doing. 
And what they wanted to do was to do it as a kind of an amusement with some of their disposable money. And then it, it just doesn't survive because it just requires too much of you to be a kind of hobby horse. Now, I'm kind of curious, you know, you talked about the Ramones in terms of content and then this business model, more of a DIY, more of a punk rock mm -hmm. business model. I'm kind of curious, you know, now you've been one of the people who's established this in the culture. But back then, it was, at least from my understanding, it wasn't entirely new, but it was relatively new. And I'm well, kind of curious. It was yeah. unusual on a scale where, um, you know, where millions of dollars would change hands. It, it, it would be unusual to have a cooperative uh, enterprise on that scale at that time. But on the, the level that we all operated at, you know, the like scratching to make your rent level, like that, that was the default. That was the norm. Everyone behaved that way. It wasn't, re there's nothing remarkable about what I'm saying about, the, about my behavior that because that was the default of everybody. Everybody who was in a band was also by default all of these other jack of all trades things that are necessary to keep a musical community active. It, was, it wasn't uncommon for somebody to, turn up someplace and say, yeah, I saw this, there's this immigrant bar that has a stage and they never have live music. I bet we could put shows on there. And that would spark uh, an effort where a couple of bands would collaboratively or cooperatively find that venue, talk to the owner, get a sound system, put on a show and see if that could be a viable venue. And th that was all spurred just by somebody noticing that there was a, a resource there that, that the community could make a use of and everybody jumping to it, jumping to the task and trying to get it done. So you could say that it was unusual for someone to operate a business at scale that way, but that, that thinking was extremely common. That thinking and that, that mode of behavior was, was normal within my circles, just at a, at a, at a much smaller scale than I've operated on here, for example. But, but even within that context, I mean, and especially as time went on and you as a band and, and as, as, as an engineer, I think that there was still a very substantial world out there that thought of, well, okay, I, I wrote about this content, but you know, there's, a, there's a major label option if I write about this content and I'm, I'm doing things in a more DIY way business-wise, but you know, maybe that would just get me to the point where someone would sign me. And the sure. fact that you didn't seem to ever consider that, at least from an outsider's perspective and, and with the benefit of a certain amount of history, that did seem somewhat unusual. Well, I mean, what you're talking about is the concept of selling out, which is where you're operating in a sort of an honorable, equitable way as part of a, a community in a collaborative, cooperative way. And then you make a choice to move into a different tier of professionalism where you are then operating with people who are buying your services and are not necessarily part of your peer group, or you are being paid in a way that is extracting value from an existing relationship between other people because you're an administrator or a facilitator. Like in order to move into that kind of behavior, you have to make an active choice. It doesn't happen accidentally. I'm using the term selling out, but and I don't necessarily mean that in the in the pure sort of sense of somebody buying your ethics or buying your aesthetic, but there's a parallel there 
where if your music means something, has cultural value, and it means something to your audience because it was a genuine expression of ideas that resonated with them, and then someone takes that music and uses it for another purpose as a means of siphoning off some of that value, as a means of associating their product, for example, with the politics or the social meaning of your music, then you have diluted and cheapened that value. You've made that music mean less. You have made its significance less to its the audience with which it originally resonated. That can be a trade-off or a kind of a transaction that people make. It often happens late in a career, but sometimes it happens quite early. And there are some people who simply won't do that. I'm good friends with Kim Deal from the Breeders and the Pixies. And she was at the center of a very hot debate where one of the Pixie songs was going to be used as the centerpiece of an entire promotional campaign for Apple for the launch of a whole series of products. A whole group of products was going to be launched using a song that she wrote as a kind of a theme. And, you know, there was a whole campaign of advertisements done. Just the presumption was that we're going to offer them so much money that they are, of course, going to let us use this song. And so let's proceed. Well, they didn't count on Kim Deal valuing her music and her creative ambition more than money. And after they had made this entire ad campaign, after they had shot all of these commercials, after they had done this entire thing, when it came to Kim Deal to decide whether she wanted her voice and her song to be the centerpiece of an international ad campaign, she said, yeah, I just don't want my voice in a commercial. And she put her foot down and that entire campaign had to be reimagined without her singing. It's just such a default now that people will allow their music to be co-opted that when someone says, no, I'm, I'm, I value my music more than I value the money that you want to pay me to cheapen it, it baffles people for whom their understanding of music is as a vehicle to earn money. I'll forever admire Kim for putting her foot down, but anyone who knows her would have expected nothing less. And you're talking a little bit about things now, and I kind of want to transition a bit just in terms of politically, culturally, in the music mm-hmm. world, just the parallels that you're seeing between now and when you were coming up. What's similar? What's different? What's changed? Um, the... The politics, the progressive politics of the late 70s, early 80s seemed quite removed from the day-to-day life of everyone, even those people who were sympathetic to progressive causes and actively fighting for them. There were things like ending apartheid in South Africa or later the ending U.S. involvement in Central America. And there was a lot of that sort of stuff, whereas if you if you just kept your nose down and went about your business, you would never be confronted with any of that stuff. Current politics, things like the Me Too movement, LGBTQ rights and equality and Black Lives Matter, those issues are inescapable. If you're at all, if you have any any kind of a, of a diverse environment that you live in, you cannot help but see the tangible reality of those struggles. And if you are a sympathetic person, you cannot help but want to get involved and want to be sympathetic, you know, and want to participate. I've been much more interested in 
supporting and promoting progressive causes in the last five or six years than I was in, say, the years 1980 through 1990, where a lot of those struggles missed me and I was deaf to some of the other ones. And I, I now recognize that as a failing on my part. And But I, I, I think being aware and in the world now means that you'll be sort of constantly aroused and often enraged by what is standard practice in some circles. And you can't help but adjust your worldview to take on that reality. I'm much more politically engaged now than I, than I used to be. I'm much more sensitive to the voices, much more open to the voices of people who have marginalized lives than I used to be. And I'm much more aware of their struggles than I used to be. There's a lot of people, I think, in the past and now that would make, and this is a little bit of a, it's a little, little too general, but they would make a parallel between some of the investor class or capitalistic tendencies that you've described and the more direct racism, sexism, anti-LGBTQ yeah, issues. Yeah, well, to, to the extent that the investor class is using money that they get to, that they have to play with, like it's not money, you know, they're, they're not using money that they need for day-to-day existence. They're using money that they can afford to invest. Like, you know, that means that they're operating from a position of privilege. And that sort of implies that they've enjoyed the privileges of all of these privileged classes, white people, educated people, native-born generally, mostly male, you know, like that's, that's the class of people who have enjoyed most of the privilege. And those are the people who populate the investor class. And do you feel, I guess, again, as somebody who's looking now, it it would feel to me as though the cultural and economic underground that you were starting, but some people would say that that has been very crucial to some of the different political movements now, because as an example, like when, when I was growing up before I became aware of hardcore and, and more mm. independent rock, everything was centralized. It was New York and Los Angeles, maybe Chicago, you know, maybe Detroit a little bit. But, you know, with hardcore, there was really a, a very strong decentralization. And just the idea that even if you were not included in this investor class, even if you were not part of that, that you could do something that had value. That seems kind of an important piece of, of what's happening politically now, but I wanted to check to see if you agree with Yeah, that. I mean, that's kind of an articulation of that original spark of inspiration that I got from the Ramones. Like, everyone reaches that enlightenment in different ways. Like, some people, they'll meet their first drag queen and realize that that's a whole other world and they have to take it seriously. Like, for me, it was, I, I heard the Ramones and I, I realized that there was a whole other world and it was much broader than the sort of square framing that I had been presented with in my upbringing and in my education. So I think it's an articulation of that same idea is that all people have value and everyone brings an experience that you can learn something from and and that can enrich the experience of everyone. The decentralization began with this kind of informal network building that started for me in the punk scene, where every time you'd meet somebody from another town, a very common scene was seeing people pull out their telephone indexes. Like everybody had these like, loose leaf ring binder phone indexes. And you would see these things come out of people's satchels or out of their backpacks or whatever. And then people would just sit on the couch and start exchanging numbers. So like, oh yeah, I have a a promoter. There's a promoter in Columbus that I really like. And oh yeah, okay. There's a guy in Dubuque who's been doing shows at the 4-H hall or whatever. And you would start exchanging this information. And a lot of times that informational exchange 
included inside baseball about like, okay, yeah, this, this venue pays off the cops. So your flyers can't have any anti-cop stuff on them or you'll get raided, you know, that, that sort of thing. So these, the, the network and the, inf- and the sort of shared information grew through person to person contact and, and everyone booked their tours through these phone directories that every phone books that everybody kept. And Often as not, if you needed a spot, needed a, a show in a town that you knew was between two other shows, you could work out a resource to to find a venue. Like, okay, is there a college there? Let's see if they have a college radio station. Let's see if they have a punk show. Ask the DJ of that punk show where they should play a show in town. Or let's see if there's a record shop. Ask if they have the Sex Pistols record. You know, you know, if they have the Sex Pistols record, ask them where in town they should try to book a show. That kind of stuff, just working on cold leads through directory assistance and yellow pages like that, that's how an awful lot of that network was put together. And that decentralization was an active and aggressive effort. There were places where there were, you know, sort of inexplicably very active music scenes like that were not part of the big, the network of big cities like New York, LA, Chicago, those are big cities. But then there were places like Lawrence, Kansas, you know, which had a university and a very active local music scene and half a dozen really cool bands came out of Lawrence, Kansas or Athens, Georgia. You know, there was a university there. So there was that whiff of progressive culture that is associated with every university. And they had a very active local music scene that sort of grew out of the college parties and the, you know, the need for entertainment and to have a good time for college students. And there, there were little hot spots like that all over. You find out fairly quickly that you could put shows together between Chicago and Minneapolis fairly easily. You know, uh, Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, Minneapolis is, was a, a quick run. And then from there, where, where do you go from there? Well, it turns out, you know, you could keep going north, you could go to Winnipeg. Like, who knew that Winnipeg had a hot scene until you run into somebody from Minneapolis who says, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of great places to play up in Winnipeg, you know, that sort of thing. You know, the thing that's been so great about what you and a lot of, a lot of your contemporaries did was you've made that world a little bit safer for the rest of us. The idea that you could do something yourself, the idea that you could start a fanzine, your own label, that your ideas matter is now a little bit more common in culture on on the positive side. But I'm kind of curious from your perspective, you know, there's a lot of people right now who are rattled because, you know, live shows aren't necessarily playing and what's that going to look like? And, you know, obviously the music business on all fronts, just in terms of selling records and all that has changed. And so I'm kind of curious just from your perspective, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are kind of wondering like, okay, like what's going to become of this part of my life and just kind of what your thoughts are. I'm not good at predicting broad cultural shifts, you know, so everything is unlocked, you know, everything's on ice right now. Our studio is in mothballs. We haven't had a session here of significance in months. And we're gradually going to be reopening over the rest of June. We've put together protocols that will allow us to conduct sessions safely with social distancing and, you know, extra time to disinfect the studio in between sessions and protocols for bringing people and food and equipment in and out of the studio. It's a lot of work to try to imagine how to do sessions safely in an environment where there's a deadly virus that's raging as a pandemic. But 
you know, that's what we're, we're trying to do. And, and everyone is trying to figure this out on their own as well. Like every single person involved in the music scene is trying to come up with a, a way to do it. Like, how is it possible to have shows when having large gatherings of people is a bad idea? Well, maybe it's not possible for a while and we just have to give up on shows for a while. The online presence of bands has grown in ways that I would not have imagined. There are these rather interesting listening parties now where a band will all congregate on a Instagram or Twitter thread or something like that. And at a designated time, they'll play through an album and talk about the album publicly, like their reminiscences of the record and inspirations for the record. And it's a way of enriching the experience of listening to that record by having the people who made it directly involved while you're listening to the record you're having all of these people commenting on it and those people have unique and inside knowledge about it i think that's an interesting development that i would not have predicted the way the online tools like things like bandcamp have allowed bands to continue releasing new material without having to be a, a part of a manufacturing industry that's been transformative as well it's like allowed some people to like increase their productivity during the pandemic because they don't have other obligations that they need to observe so they can concentrate on just making music and they have an, an easy vehicle for releasing it. They can just put it up on the internet, put it up on Bandcamp or whatever. That's something I wouldn't have predicted as well. So, I mean, there are avenues for expression. The means of like the means of exploiting it or the means of earning money off of it need to recover in some way. And there may be some permanent changes and I can't I couldn't predict what they are. I'm continually impressed by the resilience and the ingenuity of the the people in the in the music scene. If a band can't get together to rehearse, then they can still do a collaborative project by sending stuff back and forth and working on it piecemeal. That that resilience is impressive to me the way people are are finding a way to carry on the practice of music that gives me a lot of hope it means that you know what seem like insurmountable problems confronting all everyone involved in music right now just that the determination and the ingenuity that the music scene constantly expresses gives me a lot of hope that those problems will be solvable one way or another there has been a a near complete abandoning of the social contract by the federal government. Like the federal government has basically abdicated all responsibility for getting people through the pandemic. And the states have some leeway to, to pick up the slack, but I think the individual ingenuity and persistence is going to be the biggest determinant of the success of the recovery post the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a weird capitalization that's happened where this the DIY movement has spawned kind of sub-industries, like people are doing podcasts and crowdfunding their major projects. And then you have the facilitation tools for that, things like Patreon and Kickstarter, that have found a way to extract some of that money and create a new industry around the idea of not needing an industry. You have things like Etsy and where people who are doing individualized crafts where they're making things which are uniquely theirs and using their unique skill sets, but they're now a kind of a commodity. They're now like searchable. Like you can look for handmade coronavirus face masks 
that are being made in thousands of living rooms around the country. And you can shop for those in a kind of a centralized way on platforms like Etsy and eBay. And, and I'm of two minds about that. Like on, on one hand, I think it's a good use of those platforms to empower individual people to make things themselves and sell them themselves directly to other people. On the other hand, I think it's kind of tragic that everything, even the DIY movement, ends up being a vehicle for someone to hang the profit motive onto it, as opposed to it just being kind of a, a, an open expression of that creative impulse. Yeah, I'm, it's, I, I mean, it, I'm sorry. I'm inherently suspicious of someone who wants to administrate something else for a cut. That, that model, that business model has essentially always been exploitative and unfair. When your manager says, I'll take care of the phone calls for your career if you give me 15% or 10%, clearly those phone calls and answering the mail is not worth that much money, is not worth that much as a percentage of your career. But that's, that's kind of settled on, you know, the range of default standard compensation for that sort of thing, which is why you have, you might have some millionaire artists and musicians, but you have hundred millionaire agents and agencies. You have athletes that make many millions of dollars, but their agents make many tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. That's the kind of exploitation that I'm always suspicious of. Whenever someone says, yeah, let me take care of the the drudgery of that and let you can concentrate on your art and I'll just take a small percentage. That small percentage almost always seems excessive to me. Yeah. And I think that when I was saying before this, this idea of how did you make that pivot and how were you able to kind of stick to your your principles and your sense of how you want to do things. That would be an example of something where I could really imagine, especially a struggling musician, somebody comes in, you know, maybe they've managed other bands and they think to themselves like, okay, like this, this person's going to take me wherever. The, the pressure of that, especially if you don't have a lot of money, it seems like it would be a lot. And I do think that on some level, the, the people like you, people like Ian Mackay, having shown that this approach can actually work financially decades later is very different because you didn't necessarily know that that what you were doing could work. I didn't have any ambitions of doing this as a profession. I assumed, like everybody does, that I would have to get some kind of a bullshit job that I would use to make a living and I would keep doing music as a sideline or you know, I would keep doing music in the background of my life. That's what I always assumed. It has transpired that I've been able to make a career out of making records and playing in a band and helping other people make records. It has transpired that way, but that was never my ambition. You know, until I was probably 10 years into owning this building and this studio before I realized, yeah, this is my profession. I'm sort of, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my working days. It seemed like it was a possibility once I'd been doing it for a few years that that's how, I, how it could transpire, but it was never an ambition of mine. What I think we've demonstrated, though, is the efficiency of working without these outside facilitators means that you can operate on a smaller scale and still survive. There were many bigger studios than our studio. By bigger, I mean in, in terms of their annual billing than our studio 20 years ago when we opened. There were other studios in town that were doing a lot more business and earning a lot more money. Most of them have gone out of business. Most of them have collapsed because they, didn't, they weren't capable of operating at the efficiency that we were. 
we could charge less and work with a poorer client base, work with independent musicians rather than funded musicians or signed musicians. We could work with our peers and the people that we saw as comrades in this cultural enterprise because we worked so efficiently, because we wasted so little and because we everybody that works here makes a modest salary. We try to be very efficient with our use of materials and our time, and we try to conserve where we can. We recycled a lot of materials to build the studio, things like that. I bought the building at a bargain rather than a premium. We used a lot of amateur and self-taught labor to build the studio. It was all, you know, people from the musical community that wanted to contribute. And in turn, those people learned a trade, and a lot of them have gone on to do that for a living. The efficiency of doing things this way means that we don't need to work, we don't need to to earn as much to survive, which means we're going to be much more durable. And this studio has survived and has gone through several periods of very, very low economic activity in the music scene. We've survived through that because we haven't been wasting money and resources and because we didn't have expectations beyond the reality of our client base. I'll give you an example of how this efficiency manifests itself. I'm going to create a hypothetical that you are the leader of a four-piece band and that there is a gig available to you if you can find it. There's a gig available to you that's worth $1,000. And if you book that gig and play that gig, then the four members of your band will each make $250, which it's a good night's work, right? If encumbering your band, you have a manager who's going to take 10 to 15% of your band's income and a booking agency that's going to take 10 to 15% of the fee from that gig. And even the smallest amount of ancillary overhead on top of that, like the cost of shipping things back and forth or paying a roadie or paying a sound person or anything like that, then you could easily see the real income from that gig cut in half which means then that the four of you in the band, instead of making $250 a piece, are making a hundred and a quarter each, which goes from being a reasonable amount of money to make for a night's work to being kind of a crappy manual labor job, right? Yeah. In the meantime, these facilitators are making as much as you or more. You know, if your manager and your agent are making 15%, then each of them is making $150, whereas you're only making a hundred and a quarter. And the same phone call that that booking agent made to book that show for you, he could also have brought up four or five of his other acts and secured dates for four or five of them. So he could be double or triple dipping on the work that he did for your band and siphoning a similar amount of money from his other clients on the same phone call or in the same breath. And likewise, your manager may have other clients. And let's say your manager has successfully placed several of his clients on a festival where there are going to be a number of shows that all of his client bands are going to play. He'll be getting his percentage from each of those clients. And the booking agent may be getting that same percentage, even though he didn't do any of the legwork to secure those gigs. So that's a, a scenario where what sounds like a reasonable percentage, 10 or 15%, that sounds reasonable. But when it manifests and you have to split up the remaining money amongst the other responsible people, it's easy to see that the person making one phone call is being overpaid and the people driving 400 miles and hauling their gear up and down the stairs and playing a couple of hours and being away from their family for a day or so 
those people are being underpaid. And it just calls into question the whole notion of the sort of siphoning off of money. If instead of that, if the relationship was a profit sharing one, which is a model that I try to use in all of my band's interactions. Even if being very generous, even if you grant that the manager is worth as much as the bass player, which is a, a bridge too far in my mind, but even if you if you grant that, then at very least you have an equitable framework where the manager is incentivized to operate efficiently because then he'll make more money. If the profit share model is used, then everyone is incentivized to work efficiently and to not not to do inappropriate things and not to do wasteful things. And it ensures that you won't have that inequitable relationship where an administrator is siphoning more out of that environment than the principal players are, the the people that are responsible for the thing being there in the first place. Yeah. And then you can imagine bringing it back a little bit to the political realm on the human level, as you were saying, like a lot of the politics now seem much more, more direct if you are the person who's booking the shows, if you're the person who's doing the management, selling the merchandise, all this kind of stuff, you can see how sexism becomes very costly, how racism yeah. becomes very costly. Whereas if you have other people doing it for you, 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 you kind of can just be in your own world, show up and play and have whatever beliefs and behaviors you want. It's also easier to police relationships that you don't find that you don't want to have. For example, there's a a big online music retailer called Sweetwater. And the CEO of that company is a big supporter of right-wing causes and donated to the Trump re-election campaign and all that sort of stuff. If you have offloaded the responsibility of your equipment and maintenance to a tour manager, for example, he might just look for the most convenient way to get 100 sets of guitar strings as quickly as possible. And he would be tempted to go to one of these big online retailers. But if you're doing that work yourself, then you can choose where you want to spend your money. And you can spend it at a a local mom and pop retailer where you're helping out a local community, where you're helping out a local business, where you can vet the behavior of the people that you're doing business with. There are concert venues that are corporate owned where the the profits from the venue don't get distributed into the local community the profits from the venue go immediately up into the to the piles of money owned by the corporate investor class and if you're just trying to book a gig for your band as a business and you don't take those things into consideration let's say you're a booking agent and you're just trying to maximize your the ease of your job or trying to maximize the money that you make per minute on the phone, it's easy to see how a chain of corporate venues would be very attractive because you can make one phone call, speak to one booker and secure a whole bunch of shows for a whole bunch of bands and take your cut out of it. Whereas if you are the band booking those shows yourself, you're much more likely to try to find a sympathetic venue, a venue that's the behavior of the venue and the owners of the venue respect the musical community that you're a part of, respect the audience and treat people with dignity like that just because it's a an active part of your life it's going to mean more to you so it's easier to police the behavior of the people you work with if the relationships are informal and personal and it's better as an artist to know those things about the people that you work with than to just feign ignorance and throw your hands up and say well hey that's out of my hands i didn't have anything to do with it I'm sorry the tickets are so expensive that's just how that's just how it worked out you know 
we don't have any any say in that matter but you know it's it's easy to have say in that matter it's easy to to be the the person that puts his foot down and says no that's just you're just you're gouging people we're not going to charge that much I'm aware of the time. I just want to be respectful of your time. Any any final words? No, I've enjoyed this conversation. I don't. I mean, these are things that that are on my mind, obviously, because it's my life's work. But it's not often that I'm asked to articulate them to to people who might otherwise have an audience of sort of pure capitalists. <laughs> <laughs> I should say that I'm not I'm not casting aspersions on people making money. I think making money, if you can f- find a way to make money that in, that also animates you, you know, more power to you. That's great. But for most people, and for me, certainly, for most of my life, making a living is separate from, you know, earning the money that keeps me alive is separate from what I consider my real life. You know, right out of college, I had a job where I worked as a photograph retouch artist, and I was using my skills as an artist and my knowledge of chemistry and my experience on the job, I was using all of that in the service of advertising primarily for cigarettes. So on its face, that is an abhorrent way to spend your time. Like for me, someone who despises advertising and promotion of all kinds, to be actively encouraging people to pick up a habit that might kill them, I have a measure of shame about what I used to do for a living, right? That was an enabling thing, though. By working for this big industry doing this awful thing, I was able to have weekends and vacations and evenings with which I could advance the culture by recording other people's bands and by sending my band out on tour and by making records and doing all of these things. I was able to do these things because I could make a living that way. And I, I think there's there's no shame in earning a living. Everybody has to do it somehow. But I am pleased that I was able to extract myself from that and become a person who was working more directly with peers and comrades, and that has generated enough money to sustain me. But I, I can't, people do all kinds of awful things. People have to work for horrible bosses, have to work for companies that do terrible things. And not everybody has the luxury of being able to choose who they work for. So I am sympathetic to somebody who says, well, yeah, that's just my job. That's that's how I, I make a living. I'm sympathetic to people who can separate and divorce themselves from that and have a creative life or a personal life that has value beyond that. Yeah, it's just that pivot, that that just being willing to look at the world just a slight bit differently and just ask a question. Is this consistent with who I am? Yes or no? And 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 even if it's no, like you said, to say, okay, well, I have to do it for other reasons. But I feel like so many people would be would be shaken free a little bit if they would ask that, just because then they're they're in a better position to maneuver. And again, I I, I can't stress enough how much your example and what you've done and 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 the culture that you've helped propagate, I feel like has made that much more possible for people. So I think we all owe you a huge debt of gratitude for that. Well, I mean, thank you. That's very kind. But I, I'm going to reiterate that my way of thinking is not unusual and my mode of behavior is not unusual in my peer group or in this community of musicians writ large. It's only unusual when it's applied to large-scale business. And if people like me and Ian Mackay can demonstrate that it is a valid way to run a big business, an honorable way to run a big business, or bigger business, I should say, 
I still run a small business, but then the next person that does it will be another data point showing that this is a viable way to run a business. I, I think there it's not insignificant that most of the competitor studios of ours that operated on a more exploitative model or operated on a more sort of business as usual model, most of those studios have gone under. I don't think that that's a trivial point. I think it's significant that the longest lasting record labels that started in the punk era have been the ones that have had this sort of cooperative, collaborative, profit-sharing model. The big corporate record labels have all had to merge and agglomerate in order to survive. Whereas the ones that were operated as a sort of a peer network among people who were regarded as and treated as equals, those record labels have survived. And in some cases, they've thrived. Yeah. Ooh. This is great stuff, man. I always, the last time I feel like it was five years ago, but I like I feel like I'm gonna have five more years of inspiration after talking with you. <laughs> so there you have it. When faced with a world that did not reflect his sense of himself or his artistic perspective, Steve Albini went looking for something better, and he found that in punk rock culture. He immersed himself in the world of punk rock and soon began contributing as an artist a recording engineer, and an entrepreneur. And for two decades, he's shown that underground DIY businesses can be both artistically relevant and financially viable. Steve has been a great influence on me in developing hardcore humanism, and I hope you came away from this conversation inspired to blaze your own unique path. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the Hardcore Humanism podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the Hardcore Humanism philosophy and coaching program, go to hardcorehumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. We'll see you next time.